This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. This podcast is brought to you by De Beers Group Ignite, pioneering a new diamond world through groundbreaking innovation, science, and technology. Inspired by the world's unrelenting change, De Beers Ignite is driven to develop creative solutions for the diamond industry, not only for existing challenges, but also for those it may never have faced before, helping you to achieve growth with efficient and accurate technologies throughout the diamond pipeline. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rapport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz, and I have Sonia Esther Sultani and Joshua Friedman with me today in the studio. So we're all in on editorial today. Welcome, Sonia and Joshua. It's great to see you guys again. Hi, Avi. Hi, Joshua. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Avi. And as always, our job is to keep the market informed and to discuss trends that uh, that are currently shaping the diamond industry. So we're going to try and run the full gambit of what's happening um, now as we head towards the end of the year. And um, it is indeed December, so it's a chance for us to look back at um, 2021 and reflect a bit on on how that year has been. Can you believe it's already the holiday season, Sonia? <laughs> no, I'm in denial, Evie. I'm completely in denial. Um, no, <laughs> it will be 2022 and I'll be celebrating five years at Rappaport. Wow. I'm just, I really have... Time, Time flies. Fly. And uh, I mean, in this fifth year, were there any memorable moments that uh, that sort of stood, stood out for you? I would say going back to the office after having been, you know, working from home for one year, I think that was that was really nice to have that feeling. It was great to see the shows resuming. I know you had a great time in Vegas. Um, I had, you know, a lovely time in Geneva as well. So to see people the human connection. And uh, I think that was, that was fantastic on a personal level. And I think in the industry that people could go back to, to stores to actually consumers felt safe to go to stores, do their shopping in stores after having been on, on digital for a bit. And um, I saw this fantastic phrase in an article, physical digital fluidity. That's the new consumer. Fridity, fluidity. Fridity. Fridity. <laughs> Is that French? <laughs> <laughs> And so what do you what do you read into that? Um, um, that people are going to be shopping online and they're also going to want to to be installed. So I like that. Um, well, I think it's uh, th- that's what the pandemic has accelerated and, and brought uh, brought about this new new reality for for me. Twenty twenty and twenty one have just been this this sort of blur of a roller coaster ride that um, all just seems to be one long twenty four month year and uh, and we've sort of cr- uh, gone through ups and downs in both of them but uh, I think I think generally the market has uh, people in general and the market has got used to um, dealing with uh, with this reality so so I think that's where we are at the at the end of this year what about you Joshua um, how will you remember 2021 um, I was going to say something similar um, I think it's the first year since I've been at Rappaport that I haven't been on any overseas trips to shows or conferences, which I guess is a, a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it's obviously a bad thing because they're great opportunities to, to, to meet people, to learn about the industry. But I think also a lot of people secretly have enjoyed not getting on planes, not staying at hotels. But it'll be interesting to see uh, how... Uh, by by Sonia's expression, I think you, you speak on your own behalf. <laughs> and maybe your wife and kids are more than happy to have you at home. Yeah, maybe. But um, we'll, we'll see if that, uh, if that can change for you um, next year. I think yeah. uh, we're already seeing a lot of 
things coming on the horizon and on the industry schedule. And um, I'm sure uh, I'm sure we'll have a, a chance um, each of us to to meet old friends again um, and uh, and do some networking, which I think is really what everyone's craving out there. And of course, uh, for the trade, it's uh, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Um, to, to be a bit cliched and uh, by most accounts the industry has got off to a strong st- strong start to the holiday season um Joshua what are you know not to get too technical and bogged down in the numbers but um what do we know so far about the US holiday season uh, so it's it's been very strong I'll try not to get bogged down in any any of the numbers Let, let's try and do this without any numbers I think I'm gonna mention three points um the first thing is that uh, there's been a lot of early holiday shopping. So October, uh, sh- holiday shopping started in October this year. So traditionally, the holiday season is considered to be more November, December. What, why is that, um, Joshua? What, what did people start buying earlier this year? So uh, the main driver was that people were expecting shortages of of merchandise. So um, there's been some shipping issues. The jewelry industry seems to have been less uh, exposed to this, but still, uh, people have been shopping earlier. Signet said that uh, the third quarter—does that count as a number? Third quarter uh, <laughs> that ended in October, the end of October, uh, was their most profitable third quarter ever, um, and they said that was mostly because of early holiday shopping. And the other factor is uh, the we've we've seen much less spending during the shopping festivals that usually take place in late November. So Cyber Monday, uh, Thanksgiving Day, Black Friday. Those are, we usually see a bump then, uh, but because spending has been more spread out through the, through the wider holiday season, we saw less of that bump this time. So those days are quite disappointing, but it doesn't mean that the overall holiday season will be disappointing. Um, and then the third trend within diamonds is that there seems to be quite strong, I mean, there's strong demand all around, but uh, we, we, we've seen particular demand in, the, in some of the lower lower qualities and lower sizes. So the, uh, the I think the, the mid-market, the mass market has got a lot of money in their, in their pockets from various things over the last year, the government stimulus and things like that in the US. Um, and uh, and their spending, there's been a, a, a bump in, in engagements and it's, we're expecting a big... Uh, uh, surge in weddings next year, um, so that that kind of mass market is 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 doing quite well. So so I'll throw out a number for you um, <laughs> that uh, that I understand that um, jewelry sales were up seventy eight percent according to Mastercard over the Thanksgiving weekend. And um, just to follow up on what you on your second trend that um, there's less of an emphasis on those sort of um, big selling days. Um, I, for one, am, I have mixed feelings about that. I always found it kind of entertaining that um, you had these crowds and sort of consumers fighting over over um, discounted goods in uh, <laughs> and getting somewhat physical. It was always like a bit entertaining for me. That's called perverse I, entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess it's good for humanity that that's, not, that's um, less of a factor these days. And I think it ties in again to the, that idea that... Um, that holiday sales are are more spread out these days, and maybe not a, not not just holiday sales, but 
sales throughout the year that um, that companies like Signet, I think, made the point in their in their conference call that um, they th- their marketing is more continuous. Um, I wonder, Sonia, is that something you, you you're picking up amongst the amongst the independents, amongst the smaller companies? Yes, I think so. I think also this year, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't buy anything in any of these days, um, and I'm quite happy. I saw something that's becoming a trend as Giving Tuesday. So actually, the Tuesday after this big weekend that people used to spend as consumer, um, I don't know. I was trying to find the word, but. It's not all about me. It's about giving. It's, it's yes. It's not all about buying. It's about exactly. Giving as once well. you once you spend so much money on yourself, you know, the last day you add another day for to feel good about yourself. So, <laughs> so I think that's quite interesting. But um, I see I see that I think because people have become, um, as we said, they're more used to to buy digitally. They're more used to plan. Um, also because they've been talking about this shortage of uh, of goods. So I think you know people who wanted something early on bought it early on. Um, I don't know. We talk about the stimulus, like we've been talking about it, but I don't know how far you can stretch this two thousand dollars that we've been talking about. It seems for two years, like the American yeah, economy there's, has there's bounced back. Um, what I didn't mention was, yeah, that there's more savings. People have also they haven't been sent, they haven't been spending on other things. I haven't been. This has kind of been discussed to the death, but they haven't been spending on travel, entertainment. Um, well, for, for a while, it seemed that travel was coming back just in time for the holiday season. And Sonia, we were discussing this earlier that it seems that that has um, that has dissipated um, to some extent. Yeah, a lot of people are going to a destination called Omicron, which I think is just uh, not the such new a Greek, no- the new Greek um, <laughs> yeah. letter or phrase that we've all learned. <laughs> um, yes, uh, for a lot of luxury experts uh, say that there's not going to be a return to. Um, full travel the way it was until 2023, so it gives quite a bit of time to the jewelry industry to uh, to uh, to seduce consumers and uh, and replace experiences and and meaningful gifts. So you're right about that 78 percent figure. I think I, I'm, my my question is whether that reflects a kind of a, a Thanksgiving, a, a, you know, a big surge in spending on Thanksgiving on jewelry, or whether that's just that's what's going on at the moment compared with last year anyway. I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. Well, MasterCard, um, who, who carries out that, um, that, that survey that we quoted, um, has been reporting pretty strong double-digit percentage growth throughout the year. So, so you might be right that it's, that it's not a, um, a Thanksgiving or, or holiday season bump, although um, the 78% is, I think, quite a bit higher than yeah. the, the growth that we've seen in previous months. But, I mean, it's no secret now, you know, that the, the industry's had a good year and it seems to be culminating in a strong holiday season. And so we, we, we're, we're riding the wave. Um, and then, you know, as, as Sonia alluded to, you know, the question is, will that continue into 2022 or, or eventually when um, travel returns and, and there is more normalcy um, in, the, in the market? But I think, Sonia, as well, that um, in terms of retail companies' um, focus and, and the lesser emphasis on holiday sales is maybe also a result of social media engagement, that there's this more interactive um, continuous um, interaction with consumers throughout the year. And so there isn't this sort of feeling that I need to release a special massive holiday campaign. Is exactly. That, is that right? I yeah. think so. I think so. And also I saw um, a few of the catalogs for independent retailers 
You know, the, they're not doing it. I think the catalog, they don't call it the holiday catalog. They kind of call it the 2022 catalog already. You know, like, hmm. so they, it's the way for them to release the, the new trends for the, for the year coming more than saying, this is your time to buy. You know, I think it's creating, as you said, this long-term relation, relationship with, uh, with your clients. That's certainly a, a lesson moving forward to anyone who's not, um, who's not engaging with their clients on a continual basis. You can't just rely on that um, two-month, three-month period anymore. Especially the new generation. Um, there's, you know, if you don't interact with Gen Z, they will forget you. That's it. You know, if, you, if you're not on the forefront, if you think, oh, I'm just going to try to buy, to sell to people who buy the old way or the old-fashioned way, you know, they buy for the engagement, Valentine, holiday season. And, you know, you're thinking of maybe of a bit an older demographic. So it means you can't miss completely a big part of consumers who are more spontaneous, maybe in their buying purchase habits and just, you know, don't think of this landmark throughout the year. So I think that's a big lesson to learn for, for everyone across the industry. Mm, I think so. Um, the one area that the industry does look at these um, sort of big events um, still is in the auctions, on the auction circuit. And uh, in our last team podcast, we, we discussed the Geneva auctions, which is always a sort of, um, can I say a trendsetter or, 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 or a headline grabber maybe is the better better phrase. And and this week we had a um, the Sotheby's auction in New York, which um, brought some interesting pieces as well. Um, how was that auction, uh, Sonia? I think the most fascinating lot was um, a necklace that sold for 3.6 million. And you tell me, okay, 3.6 million, a necklace, um, Sotheby's, Magnificent Jewels, New York, Ah, big deal. Except that this necklace doesn't have any diamond in it. And this diamond was estimated for between a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollars. The necklace was not, yes. not the diamond. <laughs> they, <laughs> the, they, there were no diamonds. No diamond at all. So you're thinking um, that the estimate was a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand dollars, and it sold for three point six million. So Joshua, maybe help me. How many more times? Thirty six. 36 more, 36 times its lower estimate. So that's, we're talking about big, big headline grabber. And, um, and I should tell you a bit more about the necklace, I guess. You're not intrigued? Um, uh, thanks. I'm speechless. <laughs> so it's a necklace from um, 1904 by Louis uh, Comfort Tiffany. I represent a Medusa. It's, it has opal, garnet, color stones. So the materials themselves are not what we would call value. It's not about the value of the material. It's the art, the history, the craftsmanship, the name. So that's really interesting to see such a piece, you know, selling. So it's for an such early a high price. Tiffany, yeah. a very, very early Tiffany piece. And a piece of history. Yes, wow. absolutely. Medusa is in snakes on a head? Medu yeah, exactly. How do they depict that? So you have kind of a snake motif and it's very sinuous and uh, a bit dangerous, like this type of art, you know, art would be like the art nouveau, like the feminine force coming, exploding. So I think that's also telling something about the taste of the time. Well, I, I was thinking that um, today we're seeing a lot of animal motifs in, in jewelry, but I would have thought that back then it wasn't so common. It was actually. It was common. Yeah, yes. And especially, no, especially during Art Nouveau, they used a lot of, you know, um, ancient motifs, if you think snakes and scarabs and uh, different things have been used since antiqui antiquity. And they, you know, they get revived during the ages. So, so I think the force of nature is very present in this necklace. And I think, you know, 
But it's definitely a piece of history. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot more um, stories that that necklace can tell, and we'll have to put the the image in in our um, in our show notes. I think um, now that we've teased our uh, our, <laughs> yeah, our audience like that. But w- what stood out for me in the in the in this New York auction was that there was there were a lot of branded pieces and and sort of um, a strong vintage. Um, um, antique jewelry influence. Yes, and I think there's a trend across. You know, the um, estate jewelry, vintage jewelry is just absolutely booming and very popular. And you know, we're talking about these retailers that are not um, concentrating all the efforts on the holiday season or the on the engagement season of Valentine. And I think it's the same with auction houses. They actually have so many sales. They have so many online sales all the time, you know, like they've really adapted to the the new market as well. So you have online sales, I think, almost every week. Um, a lot of this beautiful sign jewelry that you mentioned, they're coming, the big pieces are, you know, usually kept for the magnificent jewels auctions, but you can see them cr- throughout the year. So that's, that makes it more exciting and you can feel there's a real demand for, for this jewelry. Nobody's waiting now, it seems, for New York, Geneva or Hong Kong for, for the big pieces. That's something that came across in the in the December magazine that the, where where we we focus on estate jewelry, um, uh, right, Sonia? And w- one of the points I think that was made is that um, that there really has it's no longer a niche um, estate jewelry. It's it's become I don't want to say mainstream, but it's uh, it's certainly uh, you know increased in popularity in um, in recent in recent times. Absolutely. And if you forgive me, I'm going to even use a number. But I'm just going to be very quick. It's allowed. And spell it out very quickly. You're our numbers um, person this time, which yeah, is no, unusual. Which is <laughs> <laughs> well, Joshua has been censored. so <laughs> <laughs> We would never censor Joshua. <laughs> but what's very interesting about the, as you say, it's definitely not niche because um, the secondhand luxury market, Ben and company uh, at the moment says, is $37.2 billion dollar. So it means that people are going to buy more and more pre-owned goods. A lot of them are jewelry. And when we say estate jewelry, estate jewelry can be on just one year, two years ago. It just means that it's been pre-owned. That's all. You know, it's not just estate jewelry like uh, the Liz Taylor a collection that happens to be at auction. It's really anything that's been owned by someone and sold again. So the platforms are thriving. There's just that two million goods a month on uh across 300 resale platforms. That's a phenomenal number, really, because if you consider that the the global diamond jewelry market is 80 billion, or was it 80 billion this year, according to De Beers um, Insights? That sort of region. Yeah, yeah. So it's really where people are going, I think. And we, it, it comes back, it fits into so many things we've discussed, like, you know, shortage of goods sometimes in stores. So people want to go online and buy something they, they really wanted from a collection that's not available anymore. Um, of course, sustainability, People want to be part of this, you know, recycled economy. Although a lot of people would say it's more the desirability of a piece than being sustainable. They really want that piece of, you know, that happened to to be two years before. Um, yeah, so it's it's really exciting, I think, in terms of uh, of the market. And that's why I think estate jewelry is becoming so mainstream. And all the dealers we spoke to for the December magazine, they said it's just a very hot Hot market, no well, numbers. I mean, w- one of the trends that um, that was listed in in um, in one of the articles in the magazine is that um, of sentimentality and sort of tapping into wanting a piece that expresses um, some emotion and some past and and you know history. 
whether it's within the family structure or, or tapping into a provenance that's out there in the, in the market. I just wonder how much the pandemic fa- fed into that trend. Apparently a lot, because what happened is people were at home, they used the internet a bit more, they were on social media, they started learning about jewellery. And suddenly they felt like they, they realized the beauty there is um, in estate jewelry or vintage jewelry. So they actually, when they, they bought more and then when they were able to go back to stores or dealers, they actually asked more questions and they wanted very specific pieces as well. So their horizons had broadened up during the pandemic, which is very interesting, I think. And that's why the the rage for um, estate jewelry is, uh, is so strong. And it, and it also certainly um, feeds into the narrative of wanting to be unique, um, which I think is is really something that's um, across generations. Really, that um, that it's the new, uh, it's it's kind of the the way consumers are thinking today. Sonia, one of the things that you wrote in the editor's letter introducing the the, the issue that I found interesting was that dealers say that there's actually many there's many ways that you can make money, more money faster than estate jewelry. But they do that because they love it. Yes, yeah, that's what, yeah. Uh, so many people said the same. That's why I'm happy that you wrote, you read the editor's letter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who needs to make money these days, right? <laughs> no, but they all said, they said, you know, if you want to make big money, you don't go into estate jewelry because you have to think, you know, you, you have to, you buy a piece. Prices have gone up as well because when we say, it's more popular. It also means prices go up for the dealers to buy originally. There are fewer pieces. Uh, they compete. They say a lot of them don't even buy auctions anymore because the auctions are, are selling so much. They have so many dates on their diary. So, um, so you know, when you invest into a piece of jewelry, like a, a bracelet, let's say a Buccellati cuff, uh, costs maybe 60000 to buy for the dealer. It's a lot, you know, it's a lot of money to invest for him to then resell you know, and the margins are, are not so, so high. Um, so a dealer told me on a magnificent piece, he can only do sometimes $2,000 benefit, but he said he wouldn't do any other job. You know, he, he just loves it. And he said the history, so he could have gone into real estate if he wanted to make the big, big, big money, but he would never have the conversation. He, he told me something really nice. He said, you know, if I wanted to discuss the, the value of a plot of land, I would do that. But I prefer to discuss little stones and Burmese sapphires and... Uh, well, gemstones and diamonds tell sto- um, tell better stories than um, buildings and um, empty plots of land, I think. Um, Agree. <laughs> <laughs> Hence, we're all here and not doing real estate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the same reason I'm also not in real estate. Um, so, Joshua, wh- one area that um, people are looking at their profit margins very closely um, in, in the market at the moment is, is in the rough market. Prices have have gone up very nicely in, tw- in 2021. And so it's, it's led us to a an interesting dynamic in the market where there's this demand for goods. And um, even if the supply is out there, it's not so easy to to buy, both, both on the polished side, but also on the rough. It seems that there's some caution yet exuberance in the, in the rough market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a bit like COVID, it's gone in waves and that there was different segments of the market have peaked or spiked earlier in, you know, earlier in the recovery and then other segments took over so i think in the last podcast we talked about fancy shapes and how that uh, at the moment at the beginning no one was pe- people weren't buying that they weren't manufacturing fancy shapes and then suddenly there was a shortage and then everyone everyone started uh, manufacturing fancy shapes and, and prices went up strongly and now the wave seems to be a smaller and lower quality 
good. So there's a there's two pieces there. There's there's the the small stones which seem to have that that those those in the, in the rough those have become very strong recently. So again, at the at the beginning of the recovery, manufacturers they wanted to you know, obviously make ha- having had losses for several months, they wanted to make you know, a nice profit in a short amount of time. So they focused on the larger, higher value goods. But now we're seeing a recovery. Well, the other factor there was that they uh, it's very hard to make a profit from small diamonds. There's social distancing in place because you need volumes, you need scale. Um, so you you can you can't really make much of a profit when you have you know these significant limits on how many people can be in the factory. So there's uh, been a lack of manufacturing of those smaller goods. That yes, and 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 now it seems that those restrictions aren't as significant now as they were, let's say nine months ago in India. And then so that's kind of accounts for the the small. I mean. I'm, I'm trying to look into this in a bit more detail. This is the, my kind of early findings. And then in the lower quality, it seems to be the, 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 the putting aside the, the small sizes, the general, the lower quality goods, so the lower colors and lower clarities, that seems to be uh, largely because of Argyle, which closed uh, the mine in Australia that closed down at the end of last year, so in the end of 2020. That was a big contributor to the world's supply of low, particularly low color goods. Um, and that's completely disappeared now. And there's there's some in Canada that have partly replaced it, but not enough. There's a big imbalance. And as I mentioned before, we, we've 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 also seen quite, you know, a lot of consumer demand for that type of diamond. So there seems to be a bit of a squeeze there. So we saw, for example, we saw De Beers increase prices um, in that category at, the, at their site at their sale in November. Um, and we also got a report Allegedly, from Mountain Pro- or reported reportedly <laughs> reported reported by Astley. Um, uh, and uh, we also got a report from Mountain Province, which owns half of the forty nine percent of the uh, the Gaucho mine in Canada in in partnership with the Beers. They also reported strong price increases for the smaller and lower quality goods. And they stayed, they said this was this was largely because of the loss of Argyle. Well, I, I think the industry can take some comfort in 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 that. Um, my, my mind immediately goes to the to the synthetics market, the lab grown market, because um, this was the area that um, th- that it was sort of predicted that um, lab grown would would take market share from the from the natural industry. And if there's still such strong demand for um, these argyle type of goods, or the lower, or the smaller, smaller goods, which are, are, are lower, all lower price points, you know, maybe, or it, it may be an indication that um, there isn't that shift to replace those lower quality small goods with higher quality small lab grown. Yeah, and our, our team in New York are constantly, you know, the Rappaport team in New York are constantly telling us that melee is it's impossible to find. It's uh, it's you know, it's selling straight away and it's hard to replace. So uh, I I would agree with you on that. Mm. And that so, specifically, melee is the one area when everyone was saying that this is has the biggest threat from replacement from lab growing. That's that's interesting, Joshua. And um, especially because we we're talking about new sources for diamonds. And uh, our own Avi Kravitz took a plane and went to Angola two weeks ago. So tell us, Avi, first, how is Angola? And how is it about diamonds? What's happening there? Because I think, you know, we have maybe a few... Uh, a lot of misconceptions about the place and uh, a lack of information. 
Well, I, th- I think that was the reason for for the government in Angola and um, through their mining company, Endiama, hosted a, a conference about diamonds in the diamond prospects in Angola. And the, the, the intention really was to get more information out there and because Angola is trying to and well, firstly, I would say the most prospective of all producing countries um, and one country that I can think of that is actually ramping up and growing its um, supply of rough diamonds. And so now, you know, it's, it's always been shrouded in a bit of mystery, the, how the, the market in Angola works and, um, and what projects are, are, are available and, um, and how easy it is to do business there. And um, so the government has put through a, a series of reforms, which um, can be fairly technical. But but the idea is to really give a better structure to the diamond mar- to the diamond industry in Angola, um, and separating out the mining operations from the sales and also the licensing of um, mining projects, and also opening up sales to the international market. And so. Um, so that's uh, that, that's the reason that, uh, behind this conference that I attended, called the Angola International Diamond Conference, um, to be official about it. And it was an interesting experience, um, partly because of the timing, in that um, the organisers really saw a window of opportunity to hold a conference after um, countries such as Australia and others opened up travel to Angola. And so they were able to, almost at the last, although they had planned it for a while, the um, decision to really go ahead with the conference was made at the last minute. And so it, it took place. And then in the last day of the conference, the um, Omicron variant was announced to the world from um, nearby South Africa. And so it put everyone on tender hooks on whether they were able were able to get home or not. And, and so it kind of made it a bit rushed at the end. And I can tell you everyone in the Rappaport office was worried. Is Avi coming back? Is Avi coming back? <laughs> I don't have a care in the world. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the conference itself was was not in Luanda, which is the capital city of, um, of Angola. It was in Sao Remo, which is the capital of uh, Lunda's sole province. And um, and that's where all the the diamond mines are essentially, or at least that's that's not far from the Katoka mine um, and the new Luashe mine. And I mentioned those um, two because that's what's really going to drive production in Angola, and and particularly you know to tie into your point, Joshua, the Luashe mine. They are looking as that's a potential source to replace. Um, although it's a higher, I think it is a higher price point um, than the Argyle goods. But when you when you think, but it is commercial quality, let's say. And so, um, so when we look at Ang- Angola is going to add, you know, two, three, four, five million carats in the next um, three years. Um, on, on an annual basis, and that's um, and so there are all these projects that um, it's marketing to the international world, as well as trying to introduce a beneficiation. One of the things that surprised me was that there is actually a physical structure of a diamond hub there. 
um, I'd heard about the project, and um, but I thought it was sort of an idea. Or, or, or but, but when we arrived, that's where the conference was held, and there were buildings, and it was a physical structure that was um, ready to, you know, ready to to host um, companies, and 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 so it was was quite well developed, and so things have moved in a very short time, quite quickly. No, that's, that's so great. Uh, you just released a new uh, Rappaport research report on the subject about this new diamond rush. Right. So I, I don't want to give too much away, and uh, but, uh, but that's it <laughs> but in a nutshell, really, um, <laughs> that uh, Angola is, you know, the, we've, we had the South Africa rush in the, in the late 1800s. Um, you know, in the in in the in the nineteen I think it was. Um, you know, Canada was the the next frontier, and and now people are really looking at um, Angola as a place to invest and explore for diamonds. Rio Tinto um, has just signed on a on a project there to uh, to develop um, or, or to further exploration on what's called the Chiri project. Um, and De Beers um, this week, in fact, announced that they are applying for a license to conduct exploration in Angola. They didn't mention a particular project, but um, it's a big deal that um, that two companies are returning to to Angola. You know, there was the civil war, which ended in 2002 and, and, and fueled, cons you know, there were co always concerns about conflict diamonds. And then for a long time, um, under President Dos Santos, um, there were, there was a perception of corruption and, um, perception. Black, well, <laughs> I, I'm, I, um, I'm being politically correct, let's say, <laughs> let's say, um, but there was certainly a lack of transparency. And so under the new um, government, which came into power in 2017, there has been a real act of, um, there, there's been a real intention to change that and, and, um, and, and legislative reform that has enabled that, um, uh, that and brought this renewed interest in Angola. Well, I'm so happy you managed to get to that window of opportunity. <laughs> There's a few days where you could travel, come in, come out. Yeah, and, and you know, safely. Sonia, you know, you spoke about the the antique jewelry dealers um, who have their stories to tell about their stones. This gave me a chance to to sit with geologists and uh, you know different people from different um, parts of the industry. Maybe a less less glamorous, but boy, do they have stories to tell! And it's really a fascinating area. You know, if you listen to a you know you attend a conference and the geologist stands up and talks about this type of rock and the kimberlite and why there's over there's over matter and and it's all very technical. But then. You sit with them at breakfast, and um, and they tell tell of their experiences um, in the early days of exploring um, and and testing for the Venetia mine in South Africa in in forty degrees Celsius heat, and um, and they have these amazing stories to tell. So, for me, it opened up the narrative of this industry that just has a wonderful story to tell across all all areas of the pipeline. So it was kind of cool. Don't you feel like you want to to interview them, Joshua, as well? Uh, it doesn't make you feel like you want to be on a plane and go and <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but um but I am happy to be home. <laughs> let's say and and I've just got out of quarantine as well, so it's um so it's somewhat of a relief. So before we we wrap up for this week, um since it is December and we we have a chance to look back at the year that was, I thought we would end with each each of us sort of choosing a um 
personal, maybe a personal professional moment. Um, you know, what, what was your favorite, uh, say, diamond moment or experience or story that you worked on in 2021 that, um, that stood out for you? Um, how about you, Joshua? So my, mine was a visit to a lab-grown diamond factory here in Israel, a company called Lucix, um, which is uh, owned by a, a group called, uh, by the name of Lander, so founded by Benny Lander, who's a, an Israeli or an American-Israeli inventor more famous for digital printing but he set up a few years ago a uh, a lab-grown diamond factory which has apparently been very successful and has a very high reputation in the industry for sort of the quality of its uh, of its lab-grown diamonds um i went to tour their factory it was the first time i'd been to a synthetic diamond factory and it was very interesting to see the, the stones growing to to hold some of them and uh, and then to interview him the founder and uh that involved a train, but not a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. I, th- that's, that's one area of, let's say, the jewelry market. Is, is it the diamond industry that? I, oh, that um, would get controversial. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite moment in the natural diamond industry, Joshua? Depends <laughs> if you ask the FTC or the ISO. But, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and again, it's, uh, you know, this is a, um, an experience product and an experience industry. And it's, uh, we certainly don't ha- create memories sitting in front of a laptop, which is what we as journalists, um, tend to do most of our time. Fascinating. Thank you, Joshua. Um, how about you, um, Sonia? What stood out for you? Well, I have a, I have a memory of a butterfly. So for me, it's always the last magazine or the magazine I'm going to start working on. I'm actually still maybe in the estate jury um, uh, mood and uh, it's interviewing estate dealers and for the for the December magazine. And I couldn't put a lot of the stories they, they shared, but one of them I thought was just absolutely lovely. And it's not in a magazine, so it's just for this podcast. Um, one of the dealers told me he, um, a few years ago, just before COVID, he went to Paris with a beautiful necklace he really liked, but nobody wanted to buy it. And he showed it to a journalist who was there. And she said, can I take a picture for my Instagram account? Took a picture. He went back to his office a few days later, got a phone call from a good friend of his in another country who had seen the Instagram post, said, um, how much does it cost? I give you the amount. Do you give me a price? Yes, we can do you. Okay, great. I buy it. He said the deal was made in three minutes and it was the saddest deal of his life. Because for him to sell a piece of jewelry is to have a conversation, is to speak, is to tell you the story of the, the necklace, where I bought it, how I bought it, argue, complain, say, why this stone, not this stone, this, you know. And he said if he had been in a time where business is only deal done in this digital way, he would never have been an estate dealer. And oh, I thought that was the shame, the greatest story. <laughs> well, so the question is, did he give the journalists um, commission on that sale? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. But also the, 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 um, the margin was very small. And he said, you know, and I said, oh, surely because you knew the dealer, he knew you, he trusted you, he didn't need to ask you questions. It doesn't matter. You're in his job for stories. You're in his, stof- in his job for emotions. You're in his job for um, something more than just, you know, a price and a, and a good deal. So I thought that's, uh, that's one of the nicest stories I've heard this year. It is. It is an, well, it's a telling story. I think, um, I, I don't know what generation he was um, from, but uh, it, it certainly um, marks a, a sign of the times, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think even the younger people that, you know, we talk about this storytelling all the time to death, really. But storytelling, isn't it about the origin, the provenance, 
across, you know, the pipeline, if you tell the stories from the diamond in Angola, if you tell the story of a piece of antique jewelry, you just want the story. You don't want just, you know, click, click, tack, check right. out. But then also these social media platforms are storytelling platforms. I mean, if you're posting something on Instagram, I don't right. use Instagram much, but you know, if, if you're posting something on Instagram, it's because you want to you want to tell a story, no? I was going to say that, um, you know, 10, 10, 20 years ago, people told stories to each other face to face, and that was the outlet. But today there, there are other ways to tell the story. And so that's what, um, that's what I guess he needs to get used to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah. a, it's a lovely story. And, and it's, um, I wish for his problems. Firstly, <laughs> and I hope he makes many more in that way. And I hope the, the journalist listens to our podcast. <laughs> we'll translate it for her, I think. Okay. So ask me, ask me what my, <laughs> uh, what was my highlight for 2021? So Avi, Avi, where was your highlight in 2021? What was the most important story for you? Well, I'm going to focus on, on story. And uh, I think maybe my, my, my peak in, in writing and covering the market came in August. Um, not that it's all been downhill since then, but um, I think we, we had to um, a very good issue of the research report and also of the the magazine and the, the topics tied in together very nicely. And that was of sustainability. And um, in the research report, I, I was, um, I really enjoyed uh, looking into, um, into the different outlets that the industry has to express their, um, their sustainability, which organizations are, giving the platform for various aspects of um, ESG um, components of the trade. And then in the, in the August Rapport magazine, um, I wrote a story um, with the headline, values, The Value of Values, which tackled the question whether a socially responsible diamond will sell at a premium to, a, to one that isn't shown to be um, socially responsible. And it was, uh, it's been a debate in the, in the trade and it was really interesting to speak to people about that. And the, and the, the bottom line was um, almost unanimously that um, it's the economics that's really driving this ethical um, trend in the, in the market. And, um, and that's not necessarily to say that the, the, in, the market's not sincere about ESG issues, but um, just to say that, it, that it's um, maybe the opposite that it makes good business sense to, um, to be ethical. And um, I was a little chuffed with, with our coverage of that because um, two months later, De Beers put out their insight re report, which came to the same con conclusion and um, with obviously better, you know, more scientific research. It wasn't an editorial product as much as our story was, um, but it was um, a validation that there is this attitude in the trade and, um, and was... Um, was maybe a um, an enlightening point that uh, that I got out of this year, and and this year has really been the year of sustainability, where it's really been the the issue of the trade, and um, and that point that uh, that it's an economic, there's an economic benefit to it. I think is the big um, big thing that we've learned about uh, about um, about sustainability. It's really year. a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for people who are listening, you can find all these articles on uh, diamonds.net under the magazine section and uh, Joshua's article on diamonds.net also under a new section. So. Absolutely. And so that brings us 
to the end of this podcast, which is our last team episode for the year. We'll have another episode in two in two weeks' time where um, I'll be interviewing David Kelly from the um, the Natural Diamond Council, um, talking about his campaigns, what what David is seeing in the in the market, and uh, maybe a bit about the holiday season. But um, as as we'll find out, I think uh, David's not a fan of just being so reliant on the on the holiday season. So we'll we'll hear what he has to say. But in the meantime, have a wonderful holiday season um joshua and sonia thanks for for a great discussion today thank you thank you thanks, you too abby happy holidays to everyone to all our listeners to all our listeners have a have a wonderful holiday season both uh, both professionally and personally i think and uh we should all be healthy and look forward to a um good momentum in business next year and uh and a um a back to normalcy or the new normal in uh, in our lives. This new normal is stretching a few years now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No Do you remember new. the episode in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening and have a have a great day. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Ignite, a full-service innovation science and technology division within the De Beers Group, spearheading step change throughout the diamond industry. 